Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. How do we do justice better? That is the subject of my conversation with my next two guests. A little while ago, I moderated a panel about uh, our court system, and it was in the course of that that I met Eliza and Marika. Eliza Darris is the co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. When he was a teenager, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He was incarcerated with adults. Uh, while he was in jail, he got his GED. And uh, he wrote a brief. He wrote a brief uh, and worked with his lawyers and got his life sentence reversed. Uh, so Eliza is here to talk to us. Marika Reese is the executive director of Ubuntu Care Services. She's a social worker. She works with victims of trauma. Uh, many of those victims uh, have intersections uh, with the criminal justice system. So she's here to uh, talk to us as well about um, their views, their perspectives, their experiences. You know, I, I think that it's important that as we try to figure out important topics like justice and fairness and freedom, uh, that we have those conversations in a real way. You know, there, there's life beyond the soundbite. Uh, so here I am in part one of my conversation with Eliza and Marika. We will continue it in part two. Here's part one. Thanks for joining. Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show, Eliza and Marika. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to have you here and Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year to you too. Definitely an honor and a pleasure to be here. Really excited uh, to have this conversation with you today. So I, I told the audience already um, how we met. I moderated a panel. Eliza was on the panel. There was an event after. I then had the great pleasure of meeting Marika too. But I, I want to start with you, Eliza, because your story uh, says a lot about a lot of things. It says a lot about the system, the criminal justice system. I think even more powerfully, though, it says a lot about hope. Uh, you were incarcerated when you were 15. Mm -hmm. uh, life without the possibility of parole. Tell us the point at which you say, you know what, there's a viable way out of this situation and I'm going to find it. At what point in the process uh, do you come to that, to that decision? So I guess it's difficult to say that there was a certain point per se. There was uh, multiple sparks and multiple points uh, and multiple interventions by uh, mentors and by people who really uh, cared about me and wanted to see me uh, look differently and think differently about my life. Uh, and so there was multiple instances. There was instances in which some people talked me out of harming myself. Um, there was instances in which individuals gave me books to read and, and, and challenged me to, to really challenge my own mind and challenge my own thinking. I think that the, the culmination of a lot of those efforts over a drip, drip, drip uh, uh, amount of time really created a waterfall and, 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 and it, it, a moment in which I realized I didn't have to die in there and that I wasn't going to die in there. But there wasn't one individual moment. There was, wasn't one individual person or one individual conversation. It was, it was really an array and an accumulation of a lot of conversations that really helped me to, to gird myself up and stand stronger. And began walking down a road of learning uh, law, of the language of law. You uh, 
said something that I don't want to give short shrift to. You said that there were moments when people had to talk you out of harming yourself. So was that early on in your incarceration that you were feeling suicidal or having suicidal thoughts? Oh, yeah. You know, the idea of living the rest of my days in the quote-unquote care of the Commission of Corrections was not too appealing to me or appetizing to me. Um, and so I really did not want to live out my days. And I, I really didn't intend to live out my days in one way, shape, or, or another. I didn't intend to live out my days inside of, of a cage. Um, and so, yeah, there was times in which people had to, you know, help me reorient my thinking and refocus myself uh, and, and hold on to the, the spark of life that I did have and not uh, extinguish it myself. I, and I should also point out to the audience, um, you know, we've talked about this online, uh, offline rather, and we talked about it when we met. Uh, the focus of our conversation is what the decisions you made and the work that you did uh, while you were incarcerated and and next steps. Um, th- this for folks who want a more backward looking uh, conversation, that's not the one I'm having right now with Eliza. So enough on that. Um, you got your GED while you were incarcerated. You also got a college degree. You worked with your lawyers and they were public defenders, uh, were they not? You worked with your lawyers yep. in order to get your conviction overturned. So let's just talk about that very briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the experience like of being a young incarcerated man trying to tell his lawyers, look, we're going to get this done. Uh, were they hopeful? Were they supportive? Or were they kind of telling you, don't get your hopes up? Well, I mean, they always try to uh, temper expectations. Hope can be a very powerful thing, but it, it can also be a very dangerous thing inside of those correction facilities. When you, If you place all of your hope and all of your faith uh, into any singular decision coming from the courts, the absence of having that decision go your way could be, quite frankly, catastrophic for a person. So how did you keep your hope up? I, I, I have to, that's, how did you stay hopeful? I never intended to spend the rest of my life in prison. I knew that I was not going to spend the entire rest of my life in prison. I knew inside of my spirit that I wasn't going to um, die inside of prison. And so I just had a belief, a faith, a hope that I was going to be on the other side of, of the wall and it was it was almost tangible but uh but back to the question that you asked me in terms of what was the relationship like it was contentious initially uh i wasn't a happy camper to be inside of prison and so i was consistently getting into fights i was uh, every time the the lawyer would come to visit with me to discuss my case i would be coming from out of the segregation unit in chains and we would discuss you know how my appeal could potentially go but then fast forward that to, towards when I began studying law myself and I began pointing out the issues that I thought should get raised in their briefings, uh, they, uh, the attorney at the time disagreed with the issues that I thought should be presented um, and uh, wanted to present the issues that this particular attorney thought would be uh, more fitting or more pressing or, or more likely to get the result that we wanted uh, which was the overturning of the conviction. It eventually got to the point where the attorney told me, if you want these issues raised, well, then you put together what they call a, a pro se, or you do it yourself, a pro se supplemental brief, and you file it, and I'll attach it to my brief, and that's how we'll go about doing that. And I spent the next 
six months putting together my pro se brief. And I was very fortunate to have the attorney actually adopt my brief. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how the courts would have ultimately ruled if those issues that were raised were raised by me and by me alone. And so she did actually adopt my brief and it was part of her briefing itself. And I'll just say that every last single issue that my attorney raised was denied by the court and the issues that I raised on appeal was, was why I got the life sentence reversed. I have to reiterate that story because this is something that uh, lawyers deal with regularly. I mean, you know, there's often the client who's like, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. Uh, I've been in that experience, not as a criminal lawyer, but as someone on the civil side. And sometimes the lawyer just says, no, I'm the officer of the court. My name's on the brief. I think what happened in your situation is uh, so spectacular because you have a lawyer saying, you know what, I believe this is the way to do it, but we need to have your voice included. And thank goodness uh, that your lawyer gave you the space and the platform to do that because it sounds like you won the case. Are you comfortable telling us what some of the dispositive issues were? and how you were able to move the ball forward and get the court to overturn? I'll, I'll high level it. Uh, basically, the, the, what was at issue was the language of the law. Uh, the, the, the language was first degree murder while committing aggravated robbery. The word while to me means that there was some level of a continuous e uh, event, um, uh, which means that this happened and then this happened while this was happening. Just the plain language of the law to me, that's what that meant. Um, and I was able to show that there was a break in the so-called continuous chain of events. There has to be continuous chain of events in order to, to show that this has causation to that. I was able to show that there was a break. And because there was a break, that, that particular charge itself could not stand. Um, and, and the courts uh, ultimately ruled that the state presented no evidence at all for that to be able to stand. And so based off of the lack of a continuous event and causation, they, they reversed and remanded. Based on the issues that you raised in your brief that the lawyer attached to their brief, and it was the issues that you raised that resulted in your sentence being overturned. Yes. Then what happens when you, how old were you when you were released? 32. And then what was the next step? So you were incarcerated at 15. You get your GED. You get a college degree while you're in. You work with your lawyers, get a brief done that gets you out of jail. You're now 32. So what's the next step? And, and, and I'm asking you this because I want people to kind of have some uh, concrete ideas about how you put your life together uh, when you're trying to make a new path. I mean, well, heck, the next step is learning how to drive. Learning how to open a bank account, learning how to pay rent, you know, learning, you know, what the, the, the various different signs and symbols meant, meant that was all around me. I had never spent one single day as an adult out here in the free world. And so, like, really some of the most rudimentary things that many people just took for granted, I had to learn for the first time. Um, but, you know, I didn't get to learn them at 15, 16, 17. I had to learn them at, you know, in my early 30s. And so the to me, the first steps was just really orienting myself and figuring out how to move in this brave new world that I had never, you know, had a chance to um, have audience with. 
you must have figured it out pretty well because you're now co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. The governor of Minnesota appointed you to the State Board of Public Defenders. You are the first formerly incarcerated person to serve on that board. So you learned how to, you went from a walk to a run pretty quickly. Uh, What is your advice? Yeah, I would say this. I did not sit around and wait like a wilting flower for, you know, someone to open up the door and release me. Before I even got out, you know, I said, okay, I'm not going to get out without having a job. And so I opened up the phone book while I was in there. And I just began cold calling numbers to uh, uh, telemarketing because I figured, you know, I spent so many years talking on the phone in there, you know, being able to to be a telemarketer out here should be an easy transition for me. And so I, I cold called a number of just I probably cold called out like a hundred numbers, and then ultimately one guy accepted the call, and I gave my spiel uh, because each time somebody would just hang up on me, I would sharpen my spiel, and then he paused and froze for a moment and said, "You know what? I have never gotten a call like this in my life. You're going to have a job waiting on you when you got out." So I already had a job when I got out. I wasn't going to wait and get to looking around and hoping and praying. I don't live my life like that. I'm very intentional. Um, I'm very strategic. I'm very focused. And so I didn't get out and just get blown away by the brave new world. I tackled it. Every last single thing that I said I needed to figure out, I figured it out uh, because it was all strategic priorities for me to figure out. And I kept everything moving. And so you were asking me what advice would I give to people in similar type of situations is do not allow anyone or anything to circumscribe your life or to um, make you feel as though you're not going to be able to tackle some of the greatest challenges imaginable and overcome them. And Wes, I have a deep and abounding belief uh, in myself because of the, the wisdom and the love that was poured inside of me by many mentors over many years. And so I speak life over me. And I speak life over others, and I expect people to speak life over me. I believe in myself. I believe in my abilities. I'm armed by, you know, some brilliant minds to be able to account to, to be able to tackle some some really difficult challenges and have faith and belief that I can overcome them. How did you end up being appointed by the governor to serve on the state board that oversees public defenders? Because, I mean, look, it seems like an obvious choice that you'd want to have someone who was a consumer, right, of the organization being regulated, the public defenders. You'd want somebody who's got firsthand experience to speak to uh, those issues. But you're the first formerly incarcerated person uh, to have that platform. How did you end up there? Well, I'm a pretty vocal advocate for criminal legal system reform. I'm also pretty versed in the language of the law, but I'm also accessible, you know, to the, the, the regular brother, the regular sister in the streets. You know, I'm in the streets and I'm in the suites. And so I'm in multiple different lanes. Uh, sometimes in the daytime, I'm in this lane and the nighttime, I'm in that lane. I don't know. Right. Uh, but also I have worked pretty in depth inside of politics. I've been very involved politically. And so uh, for a number of reasons, I think the governor uh, looked at my profile, looked at my accomplishments and said, you know, this would be an excellent voice to add as one of seven uh, board members who are overall the public defenders in the state. Tell me what you think the criminal justice system can do better, uh, both from the uh, both lawyers uh, who are serving clients, uh, 
judges who are the keepers of objectivity and fairness in the process, uh, and even prosecutors. Uh, what would you say, as somebody who's now seen so many sides of the system, uh, what are some ways that you think it could be improved? I think that a lot of the humanity has been taken out and processes and systems have taken over. And people aren't willing to take risk of seeing the human being that's in front of them that they're dealing with. The, the main thing that I would say is to put the humanity back into the system. If that's too difficult for you to do, partner with community so that community can make sure that there's a human focus and that there's a voice that can speak to the impacts uh, that come about from the, the results of what systems create. When we get inside of these systems, we become mechanized. It's a machine. You have to do it a certain kind of way every single time. Or you run the risk of losing your job. I get that. I don't run that risk. I don't have that fear. I don't have that concern. If you do, partner with someone like me, and I can give voice to a lot of the things that challenge you the most, but you would need to have the cover of someone like me saying it. And so put humanity back into these systems. Allow me to partner with me. Allow me to come in and to help to dismantle, because I mean, the prosecutors hate how the systems are too. The judges hate how confined they are with the way that things are systemically existing. They don't like to have their hands tied and they don't like to treat people not as humans in front of them as well. But a lot of times their hands are absolutely tied and they are forced uh, to uh, engage in ways that you know are really troubling even to them. And so I would say partner with community, bring us in, Sit us around the table, see us as equals, hear community voice, and, you know, let's partner. I want to pick up on what you said about humanity, because it's a great way to introduce Marika into this conversation. Uh, Marika, as I pointed out, everybody, she's the executive director of Ubuntu Care Services. Ubuntu, if I remember correctly, uh, humanity in action, is that what it means? I saw it on the website. Marika, you're a social worker. Uh, you work with people who are dealing with mental health issues, uh, people who are otherwise, in, uh, people who are in crisis. And there's a big intersection between that population and then the population that also kind of gets caught up in the criminal justice system. What is your advice and your recommendation as a mental health professional for how we could do better uh, with that portion of, you know, incarcerated people or people who are at risk of incarceration who are mentally ill, given our current resources or lack thereof. Uh, what can we do better? So many recommendations. But I'm glad you brought up resources because that's what's in any thriving community. Resources are the ability to achieve something. So we have an individual who um, has been through legal system who has dealt with things like housing insecurity, um, they've been through a lot of trauma in their life. And specifically speaking to someone who came out of you know, the prison system, they're barred from a lot of things they need to succeed, right? Like education, housing, employment, yet you still expect them to um, be a law-abiding citizen and succeed. And I mean, my belief is a lot of these crimes are need-based or trauma-based. Um, you're dealing with all this historical and generational trauma and you're not doing anything to help these people. So kind of back to what Eli said, it's about humanizing people and realizing that, okay, 
I don't need to punish you more. I need to give you more resources. I need to give you hope because that's what anybody needs to succeed. How do you balance that or how do you have that conversation or open up that conversation um, to audiences where, you know, they don't necessarily feel like these folks aren't human and it's not like they don't want people to be treated uh, compassionately. But even if you're talking about a trauma-based crime, like putting aside people who are mentally ill, if you're talking about something that somebody's doing out of need, they are still interfering with, violating, and or hurting somebody else. So how do you balance that conversation about having humanity and kind of seeing that whole person with the fact that that person may be doing something to compromise the humanity and safety of all these other people. So I think that it's, it's case by case. So there are crimes people commit that, you know, inexcusable. We can't turn our heads to those crimes. Um, you know, they've, they've hurt someone. They've done something, you know, very dangerous, dangerous themselves or others. But there are also crimes where preventative services could definitely help. Resources could have definitely helped. So in those instances, I believe in being trauma informed, and I'm a social worker. And there's, you know, a joke since defund the police came around about all the social workers since they know everything. But it's not about knowing everything. It's about being trauma informed and understanding what a community or a person has been through, and not, you know, treating them just as if they're a person that committed a crime, but really trying to understand what's wrong here. Is this a systemic thing? Is this a personal thing? Because that's what's going to make society better. And um, I, I think what I do is I tell people, you know, the reality is these people are going to get out of jail. These people are going to be in your community. So it's in your best interest to try to help them, to try to understand and to try to make maybe their own communities even better. I think a lot of people don't appreciate a lot of the stresses on the uh justice system and on jails now, I mean, just to your point about people getting out, I think a lot of the times, especially given COVID, people think that the early release happens because, you know, folks are too liberal or we're being too soft on crime. Releases happen because there's no gosh darn room. And if you've got to choose between keeping a rapist or a murderer incarcerated and somebody who was, you know, selling drugs or doing something else that may, you know, people are just making very, or I wouldn't even say that, maybe even a property crime. You know, there are decisions being made about who's going to go back into communities that are simply a function of the fact that there are a lot of people uh, who are going to jail. We, we lock up a whole lot of folks in the United States. What is a better alternative? Uh, I know Minnesota recently there was an effort, Measure 2, uh, Measure 2, I think it was, that would have removed the police department and Minneapolis, or would have replaced the Minneapolis Police Department with a Department of Public Safety. Um, how do, can either of you speak to, I know that measure was defeated, but can either of you speak to what that might look like? And I'll ask you too, Marika. What does that look like? I know it didn't happen, but I know some people, you know, are advocating for those sorts of measures. What does the Department of Public Safety look like when someone calls, they say, uh, my husband's waving a gun around at me and I'm afraid I'm going to get shot? What is what would this proposed DPS have done or, you know, a similar type institution? You know, it's kind of 
city by city and case by case. So what we're looking at right now, specifically in Minneapolis, is how to divert calls. Um, assessing the need of the caller and the level of crime, or if this is something that can be handled or should be handled with care or trauma-informed. And I know there's been a lot of talk about um, police department teaming up with social workers, and there's been a lot of money poured in the community um, from very generous foundations, one of my favorites, Polat, and they've been offering, um, you know, the funding to communities to learn how to reimagine uh, public safety. Um, and there have been many submitted proposals from St. Paul, Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center about what they want to do to reimagine what it looks like to provide public safety, partner with police, and even up to not using police for certain instances. Do you think that the call to defund was is kind of a bad choice of words, a misnomer? Because um, as you're describing it, and again, you make a great point, different defunding movements have uh, different boundaries. People are creating their own definitions. But as I hear you uh, describe it, it's not so much about getting rid of the police as it is about making sure that we dispatch law enforcement officers to situations where you need law enforcement and you dispatch other types of de-escalators to other sorts of situations. Am I stating that, am I stating your position correctly? Definitely. I think defunding the police, I like I like the term, it's kind of radical. Uh, people, defunding in me, to me means reallocation of resources. So when you think about it, we defund education all the time. No one cares, no one bats an eye. You know, and education is actually something that'd be very preventative. It's a resource, it's something that we all need, something that all, all our children use, yet we have no problem with that. But when it comes to defunding the police, reallocating resources for them, it's an issue. And, you know, sometimes for fun, I look up how effective the police have been in a certain city or state. And a couple of years ago in Minneapolis, I think it was like 22% as far as like solving violent crime. And I mean, I'm sure they work hard. They do their job. I have no issue with law enforcement. There are other measures or other programs that would be much more effective. Part of the problem with that, so we look at the solve rates of like really serious crimes. I mean, really serious crimes, armed robberies, rapes homicides, serious crimes, and we see very low solve rates. And so we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the police? Are they preventative in nature? Are they supposed to be solving crimes and preventing future crimes from happening by solving some of those crimes? Are they a deterrent? Like what is, what is, what is the function of law enforcement within our community? Uh, and so people talk about defund, I mean, that, that you know, you, you asked a question about um, question two that was on the ballot, um, the Department of Public Safety, and, and in the scenario you gave, uh, a wife called stating that her husband was waving a gun. The call then goes into the switchboard. What does the switchboard do? Does it send a social worker? So the way that 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 initiative was configured, that would be a two type of response, depending on the nature of the of the alleged offense that was happening. There will be a non-armed response in the instances where it was deemed necessary, and then there will be an armed response in a very hot situation. So there was never a call to not have an armed response, but the reality that we're living in today is that every single call, no matter what, is an armed response. And so someone's cat is stuck in a tree. 
You call the police, the police come with an armed response. Um, someone is upset that someone won't leave their house quick enough, an armed response. Someone is having a mental health issue, an armed response. And so we have police officers being uh, called to be dog catchers. They're being called to be psychotherapists. They're called to be this. They're called to be that. And so they're stressed thin. And so the, the, the critical things that we really want them to solve and the numbers that we truly want them to push down, they're so diffracted. They're answering so many calls for service. They're in so many different spaces and so many different layers within those spaces. Some of these spaces, people have to go to school for six to eight years to get degrees in, and yet we're expecting law enforcement to show up into all of these spaces every single time someone dials 911. And what we are saying is, no, wait, stop. It makes no sense to be expecting or asking law enforcement to respond to all of these offenses, and yet we're looking at the solve rates of really critical incidents and they're saying that they don't have enough resources. Well, let's reallocate some things. Let's, let's, let's get resources to the people who are best situated to respond to some of these incidents. Let's create a department of dog catchers, for instance, right? And so you dial 911. Well, then instead of a cop coming, we'll have a dog catcher coming, right? Uh, and so that's just not what we are experiencing in Minneapolis right now. Police officers come to every call, every single time someone dials 911, even if it's a medical incident. Sometimes the ambulance will wait down the road until police officers get there, then they go into the scene. I mean, it, 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 the, the stuff makes absolutely no sense at all. Police departments typically are the number one budgetary item for any city, pretty much most of them across America. And so we're saying, are we also funding education? Are we also funding chemical dependency? Are we also funding housing? And so if, let's say, $300 million is going into policing, and yet we're seeing that we have very low solve rates, and we're seeing that, that we're continuing to have issues, well, do we try to get more on the front end of those issues because we know police officers are not able to prevent crimes? So how can we prevent crimes? Well, through education, right? Through helping people resolve their chemical dependency issues, their psychosocial issues, the family dynamic issues. Police officers aren't situated to resolve those issues. Let's, let's fund, let's resource, let's reallocate these resources and better fund those entities that would be better suited, better situated to respond to some of those. That's actually what the, the so-called defund movement was in Minneapolis. And if you look closely at the language, that's precisely what it was saying every single time. But the, the narrative from the right took it and controlled it, fear-mongered. And people are always going to operate off of that base level. And so they communicated a message to the fear as opposed to the reality. That was part one of my conversation with Eliza Darris and Marika Reese. We are going to continue our chat in part two. Thanks for being here.